This is Salt and Spine. I'm a very moody eater. You know, I wake up in the morning and I'm in the mood for a flavor profile. I'm in the mood for a specific protein. I'm in the mood for something. And that's the dish that I need to create that day. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Danielle Renov. Danielle is the voice behind Peas, Love, and Carrots, her food blog and Instagram of the same name. A native New Yorker, Danielle has lived in Jerusalem for over 13 years now, and we're here to talk about her first cookbook, also titled Peas, Love, and Carrots. It's a large volume, more than 250 recipes, that blend her culinary influences in unique and sometimes surprising ways. For instance, look no further than the the recipe that's photographed right on the cover of the book. It's a matzo ball soup, but this version pulls in influences from Morocco, as you'll learn her mother was born in Casablanca, like chickpeas and spicy harissa. And it also has ingredients like fennel and Swiss chard, which are abundant at her local shouk. You'll find lots of other recipes here that bridge Danielle's Moroccan and Ashkenaz identities, and many more that are just craveable kitchen staples, like her dozen salad dressings and more simple chicken dishes than I can count. Now, Danielle joined us remotely from her home in Israel for this week's episode. It's a great conversation, so stay tuned. And of course, we're playing a culinary game with Danielle at the end of the show, so don't miss it. Let's head now to our virtual studio where Danielle Renov joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Danielle. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Yes, we're we're thrilled to have you and to talk about your cookbook, Peas, Love, and Carrots, um, which I love. It's beautiful. I love this cover. But let's come back to the book in a second and start by talking about you first a little bit. So you, um, I know you grew up in Long Island. Were you born there? Yeah, I was born in Manhattan, in Lenox Hill Hospital, okay. to be exact. But I spent my whole life in Long Island. Um, I went to a Jewish private day school my whole life. And when I was 18, I spent a year in Israel, came back, went to college for a little, got married, and then headed right back to Israel and have been here ever since. And talk a little bit about what life was like for you growing up. What sorts of uh, food-wise, what sorts of things were you eating? I know your mom is Moroccan and your dad Ashkenazi, so you sort of had both of these influences, right? Yeah, I led a very blessed food life. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, <laughs> I would say most people on Long Island, um, you know, eat like really, if you're Jewish or eating very Ashkenazi food, there's not very many Sardim, at least when I was growing up. Um, you know, Jews from the Sephardic culture, Morocco, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, Turkey, Tunisia. In Long Island, uh, my mother was certainly the only non-American-born parent I knew growing up. And actually, I I was really blessed because Moroccan food is really, really delicious. And that was kind of just the cuisine of my childhood. So I was very lucky. And my mother, being the really wonderful, devoted wife she is, not only cooked Moroccan food, but really embraced my father's culture and also learned to make the foods that, you know, he too grew up with and loved eating and brought him comfort throughout his life. Um, So I was really lucky to just have a mother and grandmother who were excellent, excellent cooks. And um, I grew up eating very, very well. (laughs) Yeah. 
were there favorite dishes of yours as a child or things that on there the were. flip side that like you detested? Okay, listen. I love Moroccan <laughs> food and I love Ashkenazi food and I actually love what my mother did with food and what food meant to her and how she used the food to really uh, blend our Moroccan and Ashkenazi cultures and bring everybody to one table. And, you know, she did a fabulous job and I, oh, I could talk to you more about that after. But I do also have a deep love. You know, I did grow up in New York for like New York style Chinese takeout. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love a good bagel. I love pizza. I love that sure. stuff. I love it all. In regards to, you know, the childhood food that I grew up eating at home, like that kind of homemade comfort food. One of my favorites is mafletta. It's in the book. It's like a Moroccan pancakes type of thing or crepe. It's hard to even explain. Um, it's so labor intensive. And no matter how many times I asked my grandmother to make it, she would wake up early in the morning and she would make a batch of mafletta. And, you know, the fiflet tomates, it's like a chicken, tomato, vegetable stew. That's something we grew up eating. And I think because it holds so many wonderful memories of my family sitting around the table and it, it really does bring me comfort when I think about the dish that as an adult, I love the dish even more than I did as a child, you know? Yeah, you have a, a deeper appreciation for it today. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Your grandmother seems to have a pretty seemed to have a pretty big influence on you food wise. She comes up a lot in the cookbook. You've mentioned her a couple times. Um, and I think she lived with you for periods of time. Is that right? Yeah. My grandmother would come for months at a time, like three, four months at a time. We had a room, grandma's room in our house, which was right off the kitchen, which is where she wants it to be. And she literally just cooked all day. You know, my earliest memories of my grandmother are in, you know, the kitchen in the home I grew up in when I was very little, sitting at the table with a stack of sheets of dough that she would make for Moroccan cigars and piles of the meat, which, you know, actually for real authentic Moroccan cigars is meat that's cooked and then it's actually put through the grinder again with cooked liver to make it really creamy and delicious and spicy and sit there and she would roll thousands of cigars. I mean, at a time because people would come from all over to pick up her cigars. My, my grandmother was, you know, there's like one in like every family. I mean, she was really the best cook. I mean, she was really, really amazing. So people would come to pick up her cigars and, you know, she would sit there and she would roll cigars and she would make us the maflata and she would make the nougat and she would make the fifa tomates and she would make us, you know, when we weren't feeling good, we, we called it grandma tea. It's Moroccan mint tea, which is in the book, which is just green tea loaded with tons and tons and tons of sugar. But when we didn't feel good, she would make us Moroccan mint tea. And, um, you know, then every day at seven o'clock, she would go and watch Will Fortune, even though she didn't speak English. (laughs) And I just, I do, I have very fond memories of her. And I think that my cooking, my love for cooking really began with watching her cook and seeing the love and devotion she put into every dish she made. Yeah, I love those memories. So you moved to Israel 13 years ago, is that right? Yeah. Um, And so most of your adult life living in Israel, can you talk about how sort of your cooking and your food life evolved when you made the move from the United States to Israel? Yeah. So it changed tremendously, even though I grew up in a home with a blended food culture. First of all, I think anytime you pick up a move, if you move from Long Island to New Jersey and you all of a sudden have to start shopping in a different supermarket, that in and of itself is a culture shock. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know where our stuff is in our local yeah, grocery store. Right. And we want the, every grocery store to look exactly like that. We want every layout 
same. And we want the freezer section to be where it's supposed to be and everything categorized the same way. So, you know, that in and of itself was just a typical move. But in addition to that, there was a cultural, you know, application to the move. And there was a language barrier. So all of a sudden, not only did I have to learn a new supermarket, but I had to learn food words that I hadn't had up until now. And that was really difficult. And it was a challenge and I had to overcome it. And then on top of it, you know, you grow up in New York. Yes, strawberries taste better in the summer, but that doesn't mean you can't find a strawberry in February. You know, you can find everything all the time. And I moved to Israel and we moved around September time. And I actually wanted to go make a dish with strawberries. And I go into the store and it's like a local fruit and vegetable store. When I moved 13 years ago, there were no big box grocery stores here. There was only small vendors and there was the shop, the open air market, which I'm very fortunate to live eight minutes from and do my shopping in. And I walk into the um, local fruit and vegetable store and I asked the guy, you know, where the strawberries are. And he literally started laughing at me. He was laughing at me. And I was like, oh, wait, what, what, what? Also because it's the summer. So if you're going to have strawberries there, it's going to be now. Like, why are you laughing at me? And he says, no, of course we don't have strawberries now. And he looks at me like I'm an idiot. And I'm like, wait, I don't understand. Why not? He's like, Zello, how not? It's not the season. And I'm like, well, actually it is the season. Uh-huh. And he's like, well, it's Israel and it's not the season here. So there are no strawberries. (laughs) Not only did I have to learn to really, um, you know, not make my menu before I went grocery shopping, you know, I have to switch that around. We don't make a menu and then go grocery shopping. We go grocery shopping and then come home and make the menu, which is a totally different mindset. But I also have to learn all of these new seasons because in fact, strawberry season in Israel is in January, not in the summer. (laughs) So I really had to re-educate myself. Um, And it it took me a few months, but I was, you know, I would walk around literally with a pen and pencil. I went back to him a few weeks later with a notebook. He was hysterical laughing again. I still love him. Like to this day, he's like, we're friends. Um, I went in pen and paper and I'm like, tell me all the seasons. I need to know. Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that not only obviously changed and affected how you shop, but clearly how you develop recipes too, how you build a menu, but how you think about developing recipes. Did that sort of, as you've become a a full-time sort of recipe developer and now cookbook author, like how did that affect how you think about recipes too? Um, I think that for me, recipe development is very intuitive because I'm a very moody eater. You know, I wake up in the morning and I'm in the mood for a flavor profile. I'm in the mood for a specific protein. I'm in the mood for something. And that's the dish that I need to create that day. It's very hard for me, you know, when I write for a magazine or I work for a company to say, okay, you need to develop a recipe for crushed tomatoes. I'm like, but I don't want crushed tomatoes. Today, so how could I possibly develop that recipe? But on a day I want crushed tomatoes, I can develop 14 recipes for them. So Actually, it kind of really worked to live here with my recipe developing style because I go to the supermarket or I go to the open air market and I walk around the stalls and I'm constantly inspired by all of these wonderful ingredients that we don't have all year or the beautiful produce on display or, you know, the fish changes every day. Fish here is not reliable. Like most of what we get is sustainable and beautiful um, wild fish. And I go and I see, okay, this is the best fish today. Oh my gosh. And instead of limes, it's lime season. Let's use the limes because the limes look amazing. And in a weird way, the recipes sort of write themselves when that's how you come to approach them. Sure. I mean, you not only adapted to the changes in how you can source specific ingredients, but you also write about the sabbatical year, which takes place every seventh year. Can you talk about that and how that affected you as a cook? Oh my gosh. 
It's wild, wild. I moved here on a sabbatical year, which is um, the same way the Sabbath comes on the seventh day of the week. Um, a sabbatical year happens once every seven years. And during that year, Jewish farmers do not harvest their fields. Um, the fields are left for uh, people that are poor or, um, you know, homeless or don't have access to food to take whatever they want actually the whole field is up for grabs we don't plant it we don't harvest it we don't plow we don't do anything like that um so during that year our produce becomes very 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 limited lettuce is like not a thing there's no lettuce <laughs> our cucumbers are very 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 sad um we're very fortunate you know to despite what is portrayed to have um you know really good relationship with a lot of Palestinian farmers who we can buy produce from because um they don't have to observe the sabbatical year but it's limited because there's a lot of people and there's not that many farms and i had to really learn to adjust you know things like cucumbers peppers tomatoes lemons, onions, potatoes, real basics we'll have access to, but they don't look as nice. And um, you really have to learn to plan your menu. So I have a few salads in the book that I'm like, these are as abatically your salad because it's actually filled with grains. <laughs> That's how we do salads during the sabbatical year. But I love it. I love the limitations because I actually think like even with keeping kosher, you know, it's almost easy. Well, I don't want to say easy because, you know, it's, it's actually not easy to be, you know, really good recipe developer, but being able to use natural flavor enhancers like pork or butter or being able to combine ingredients like that is amazing. But when you don't have those tools and you are limited and you're forced to be really, really creative, you actually can create something unbelievable when you really push yourself. Yeah. So you've been doing this work for a while, developing recipes, blogging, using social media to share your recipe development and what you're cooking. When did you decide it was time to write a cookbook? How did that come about? I didn't. I didn't want to write it. <laughs> no. You didn't want to write it. Okay, tell us how it came about. I, I initially started my food career, um, you know, doing private uh, catering for people. And after like three or four years, I was like, this is boring. This is not for me. I need to create. I don't want people just to say, I want this kind of chicken. I want this. It's not for me. And I actually started writing a cookbook and I wrote a manuscript and I had three small children at the time. I live in Israel. My husband lives in Israel, but travels. He's gone a lot from Sunday to Thursdays. And I was like, I, there's no way for me to bring this manuscript to fruition because, and now I know for a fact, you know, you really have to check out for like a good six months between editing, photography, typography, like all the little things that you don't even realize go into a cookbook really take over your life. And I just didn't have time. And uh, about a year or two later, Instagram started and it started picking up traction. And I was seeing what other people were doing. And I was like, you know what, this is great. This is so good for me. I can just make dinner every night and I can post the recipe for dinner and nobody needs to pay me. And it could be on my own time. I'm making the dinner anyways. What do I have to lose? And I started on my Instagram very, very quickly um, grew. And thank God I have the most amazing Instagram community of really, really um, devoted, loyal community members that are engaging and informative and have taught me so much. And um, after like three years, you know, people really wanted a book. You can't search on Instagram, which is an unfortunate feature. And they were sick of having the recipes on the blog or Instagram. They really wanted a book in their kitchen. So I said, you know what? Now is a great time. And I just, I, and I just did it. I just wrote the book. Yeah. And I'm so happy I did it, but I'm never doing it again. That's it. <laughs> this is the one and only? Okay. One and done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You decided to open the book with this list of 86 things that you want people to know about cooking, about the book specifically. And as I've looked at some of the press coverage, too, of the book feels like there are some elements of it that are, I guess we could say, like controversial, right? Like 
in particular, your aversion to raisins has like really bothered some folks. I know. I hate How did you decide to open it with that list? Uh, you know what? I don't care. It actually really bothers me that they like raisins. So <laughs> Right. <laughs> How did you decide to include that list and like to share some of those tips that you shared? Like, uh, you know, raisins obviously are one of them, but you also have little pieces of, I guess, advice, like half a tablespoon is not a real measurement. And I also love table manners exist for a reason. <laughs> You know, I just felt like there are things that like need to be said that are never said, but that if you put them in in a humorous way, maybe people could hear them. And um, I, reasons I really like just actually think are offensive and gross because when you're a little child and you bite into a cookie and it's a raisin, or you bite into like a traditional, you know, Ashkenazi noodle pudding, which is supposed to be sweet and delicious, and inside there's a golden, mushy, nasty raisin, it's very upsetting as a child. You know, it, it literally ruined the food for you. And I, no, literally, as a child, I really thought I didn't like oatmeal cookies. <laughs> yeah, I did. Like, you know, if you would say to me, do you want an oatmeal cookie? I would say, no, I don't like them because I didn't know there was an option to put chocolate chips in them because there were always raisins. (laughs) And I just, whatever, I just find them annoying and irritating. I don't like them. But, okay. Um, You know, the thing like table manners, I think what's, you know, I, I think it's just another way of saying, like, be kind to the person sitting next to you. You know, it's just not nice to sit there, you know, chewing with your mouth open, spitting out food, like... Think about the person that's sitting across from you. Yeah, that's that's great advice. I'm glad you you included it in there. Um, people do need to absorb that information, I think. Um, one of the recipes that really stuck out to me, and I love the story behind it too, is the smoked white fish toast with the radish butter. I love you! Um, tell us about, which almost didn't make it into the book, right? I'm, so I'm curious, one, about like your recipe t- development process, because that one was like on the cutting block for a while. And then tell us how it sort of ended up in the book, actually. So that, you should know, is one of my favorite recipes in the book. It's really a foodie recipe. It's a recipe for people, I think, that really get and really like food, because it's not typical. Um, basically, if you have the book, you know, it's very, very heavy. It's very large. There's over 254 recipes in the book. There's tips, tricks. There's recipes within recipes. There's bonus recipes recipes and um, I was at some point my publisher was like okay Danielle you're this is your page limit you're done like you cannot push the limit anymore and that was really reasonable because the book is big and it is heavy and I understood and we have to cut a bunch of recipes and the recipes that I really did choose to cut were sort of the foodie recipes were sort of the recipes that are more either labor intensive like Moroccan cigars which literally took up three pages of text or you know something like the whitefish toast that maybe only you know the 10% will actually get But when we were in the studio on the first day, my brother came to visit us and he brought bagels and a whole smoked fish spread from Russ and Daughters, which if you've ever been to New York, you know that Russ and Daughters, like their fish is like no other. I mean, it's just as far as appetite, it's so delicious. And he brought so much stuff and he brought this entire smoked whitefish and it was so gorgeous. And the food stylist looked at me, she's like, how can we not use this in the book? Do you not have a recipe? And I'm like, I actually do have a recipe. And I was like, it, it was just pulled out of the manuscript a week before the photo shoot. And I was like, it's it's fully typed and tested, in fact, because it's come this far along. And she was like, what is it? And I'm telling her what it is. And I'm telling her about the radish butter. And she's like, wait a second, radish butter? And I'm like, yeah, she's like, you mean miso butter? I'm like, no, radish butter. And she's like, Danielle, that is genius. I want to eat the whole thing. And I'm like, right. okay, no, I just put it back in. We're putting the recipe back in. And I call my publisher and I'm like, he's like, you're going to have to take one out. I was like, no, it's going in. It's from God. He sent us the smoked whitefish. It's here. It's going in the book. 
<laughs> and we did. We, we fought for it and we included it. And I just, I love everything from the photo to the recipe to the whole thing. I just love it. Yeah. I, I can't wait to try that one. And the photo is so stunning too. I mean, with the whole fish, it's just like, it catches your eye. Breaking. Yeah. It happened to have been, you know, Ross and Daughter sent us a really beautiful fish. So thank you, Ross and Daughter. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Danielle Renov. Don't go anywhere. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine. This week, you'll find a chance to win your own copy of Peas, Love, and Carrots. We love sitting down with your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat, Carla Hall, and today's guest, Danielle Renov, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. We also just launched last fall our new Salt and Spine Cookbook Club, where we cook along with a featured author and then join them at the end of the month for a really awesome and fun virtual dinner party. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with Danielle Renov, author of Peas, Love, and Carrots. Speaking of specific recipes, I think um, another unique one that actually is the recipe that's featured on the cover of the book is this matzo ball soup that has a Moroccan twist, right? Which you sort of described as basically me in a bowl. How How do you like sort of develop recipes like that that bring together different pieces of your identity? So this recipe is specific. It's unique. It's the only recipe that I've actually ever developed like this, where I had an end goal in mind, and the recipe was the vehicle to the end goal. Um, The end goal was to create a recipe for the book that really embodied what the book was, which is really a melting pot of cultures. Um, And, you know, I didn't want to write kosher on the front of the book because to me, kosher is so secondary. It's not about that. It's about good, delicious food. It just happens to be kosher. Um, And... You know, there's a picture of a regular matzo ball in the book on the page before. It's just the matzo ball recipe. And it was one of my favorite pictures. It's such from a food photography standpoint, such a beautiful, perfect picture of the simplicity of it. And we decided we really wanted something like that. But I was like, I can't put just a matzo ball on my book because it's so Ashkenaz. And I, even though I'm half and half, I, I identify so much more closely with the Moroccan side um, that I can't just put it. And I was like, well, you know what? Why does the matzo bowl only have to be in an Ashkenaz soup? I have a matzo bowl in a tomato soup. Why not do something completely different with it? And um, we created this really uh, melting pot of cultures in a soup bowl. You know, the soup is deglazed with Iraq. We have Middle Eastern influences to represent my life in Israel. And we have sumac and fennel and carrots and radishes and saffron. And it's really, really flavorful. And, you know, I loved the idea of deglazing with Iraq because it's not a liquor that's really commonly used in cooking. But complemented the fennel so well and it's such a flavorful soup in such a subtle way you know you take the first sip of the soup and it almost feels um light because it is light it's a light broth but then as you eat it you keep right. like another bite maybe you get a little bit of radish in your fork bowl. maybe you get a chickpea in your fork bowl. maybe you get a sprinkle of sumac and it's constantly evolving as you're eating this bowl and i feel like that's really really um, expressive of what goes on inside the book Yeah. And so much of what you do, I mean, you're a mom, you involve your kids and your family in 
your social media, like your recipe development. You even have sort of at the end of the book, this great little page of family faves where you sort of denote which of the recipes um, your family members love. How do you sort of decide how much to involve your kids and your family in your food process and your in cooking in general? I'm very fortunate that I have like built in taste testers, right? If you have enough and you have enough of a variety because obviously no two kids ever like the same dish. That wouldn't happen, right? So, you know, I have one child that loves spicy food. So I know, okay, he can't be my spice level raider because he likes spicy food. But my kid that doesn't like food as spicy, I can give it to him. And if he tells me, okay, this is a good level spicy, then I know I'm good with that. And, you know, my husband, who's a very, very, very picky eater, more picky than any of my kids, actually, if he really likes this dish, I'm like, okay, I definitely have a winner here. You know, this is definitely a crowd. He's like the least common denominator. So if he likes it, everybody likes it. Right. Um, so I feel very fortunate and there's no reason for me to ever uninvolve them because their advice is valuable and, you know, children have opinions and they're right on. So, yeah, exactly. We talked earlier about your mom and your grandma and sort of what you grew up eating as a child. Were cookbooks a part of your life as a kid? Do, were there cookbooks? Oh my gosh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, actually, I'd say if you ask me my biggest accomplishments in this book, it's quantifying Moroccan recipes. You know what? It's quantifying any recipe that comes from your grandmother. I think no matter what culture you have. <laughs> sure. yeah. um, because, uh, you know, my grandmother... There were no measuring spoons in Morocco. Tea glasses was like the measurement for everything. Half a tea glass. It's the proportion um, that really matters and the technique that they use in cooking. And that was passed down from mother to child. And my mother can't follow a recipe, you know, for anything. So. Uh, yeah. When did sort of cookbooks become important to you? Were there like, was there a time when you sort of started to turn to them? Do you remember like your first one? No, they really didn't. Um yeah, no. I, I'm not actually a very good recipe follower myself because I just like can't be bothered with the reading. <laughs> That's the truth. But I'm very visual. So I do like to look at pictures of food and food pictures. And I love to connect to people. So I love a good cookbook with good blurbs. I love to get to know the author. I love to get to know the story behind the dish and be inspired by the dish. And, you know, I even write that here. My goal is for you, you know, if you're a novice cook, use the book, follow the recipes, teach yourself how to cook through this book. But then as you progress, Stop following my recipes because these are the recipes the way I like them. But you now need to change and adapt the recipes and be inspired by them to make them the way you like them because we're not going to be the same on every dish. And that's really my goal. And I say that in the beginning, that I really want you to be inspired by the recipes more than to follow the recipes. Yeah, I think that's great advice um, for readers of your book. So we always end with a little game. So I thought we would sort of borrow um, your process of shopping first instead of building a menu and then shopping. We've got these little cards that we often use. So we've got a stack that's produce, like vegetables here. So we'll pretend this is like, okay. this is like our shoot, right? We're going to go and we're going to pick one of these. And that's what we were able to buy at the market that day. And then we're going to come home and like draw something from our pantry, a flavor. And I'm going to see if you can sort of tell us how you would merge those two things into one dish. And we'll do like a round or two. Okay. How does that sound? Yeah, game up. Okay, great. So let's shuffle the vegetables and we'll pick. Okay, we have asparagus. Ooh, such a good one. And then let's see what we have in the pantry. Um, and cilantro. Right in my wheelhouse. Thank you, Morocco. Okay. okay. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going <laughs> to yeah. take the asparagus. I'm going to put a little bit of salt and pepper, and I'm going to pop them on the grill 
charcoal grill specifically because like that's just the most flavorful and the most delicious. And then I'm going to make a cilantro vinaigrette, um, maybe with uh-huh. some champagne vinegar and maybe just a little squeeze of lemon for freshness. And, you know, just like, I, I love to mix acids. Like I, I really like flavor forward foods. I'm going to put some salt, some pepper, maybe a little pinch of Dijon mustard just to give it a little more viscosity and some olive oil. And I'm going to drizzle it on the asparagus, but I'm going to drizzle it on like seconds before it comes off the grill. This sure. way, as I put it on the platter, it sort of soaks up those flavors then maybe i'm gonna like grill chicken and just have like that simple delicious dinner and it's gonna be oh so summery and delicious oh that sounds so good i love that and right on on your wheelhouse too of like using sauces dips to complement things let's do another round so let's pull a vegetable um okay i feel like the next round's gonna be very difficult because that one was too easy okay it's corn how do we feel oh no no no, thumbs down on corn, but okay, fine. Challenge accepted. We'll make it work. Okay, challenge accepted. And ginger is what we have oh, in the pantry. Because that's what you do with things. <laughs> They're just stuck in the fridge. <laughs> yeah. We're going to yeah. I think a like a, like a cream of corn? Yeah, like we're going to saute onions and celery and no carrots because I, I don't want the carrots in there because the corn is sweet enough. We're going to add the corn. We're going to saute that up. Um, we're going to add some chicken stock. Mm-hmm. We're going to let it simmer for a long time. We're going to stick a bay leaf in there to give it like really nice earthiness. Um, maybe like a little pinch of turmeric because I like the turmeric-ginger combination. And then we're going to add some coconut milk or coconut cream, whatever you have. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take out half the liquid. Oh, we're going to grate some brush ginger in there that's where the ginger is going to come we're going to take out half the soup and we're going to blend it and then we're going to return it back so we're going to have like this cream of coconut soup but we're still going to have Uh the corn kernels in there and actually i think i would eat that that sounds pretty delicious (laughs) yeah that sounds pretty delicious (laughs) i would eat that too (laughs) also summary yeah (laughs) These are some like great summer lunches coming together. Well, this was so great. Thank you so much for joining us and for playing our game, Danielle. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Peas, Love, and Carrots. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening, and you can leave us a rating on iTunes. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering digital classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into 
into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the Home Edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.